I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. We're here coming to you from San Antonio, Texas today, where we're here with our Directors Club supporters, discussing the topic, studying the topic, how the West was won, the Mexican-American War, westward expansion, and the American spirit. We've been joined for this weekend in this conversation today by Professor Dan Monroe. Dan is an old friend of Ashbrook and the Ashbrook Center. Uh, he is chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Millican University in Illinois. PhD from the University of Illinois, studied with the great Bob Johansson, and has written pretty widely and extensively and deeply on the 19th century. John Tyler, uh, president of the Illinois Historical Society, historian for the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Dan, um, remember the Alamo. We've heard that several times since we've been here in San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> Why should we remember the Alamo? Well, it's a significant moment in American history. You know, the martyrdom of the Alamo men led inexorably to the independence of Texas, and the independence of Texas led to the annexation of Texas to the United States. And that, in turn, uh, fueled the Mexican War, which led to a divisive debate on the expansion of slavery. And that's part and parcel of the path to the American Civil War. So in many ways, the Battle of the Alamo, although it's a long and somewhat indirect course, you're saying the Battle of the Alamo is actually connected to the US Civil War. Very much so. Uh, you can make the case that it's the annexation debate that follows Texas independence that, in turn, leads to Mexican hostilities that began the Mexican War and the divisive debate on slavery's expansion. Okay, so the Battle of the Alamo, why was it fought? Basically, it was a product of frustration. I, I think the way that... And I, I'm sorry, what year was it? Some of our this listeners... This is in 1836. Know. 1836, okay. Um, it's, I think, a product of a kind of cultural clash between American settlers in Texas and the Mexican government. I also think that Santa Ana's dictatorship, Santa Ana was, became president of Mexico in 1833, declared himself as a dictator in 1834, dismissed the Mexican Congress, and began to reconquer provinces that had revolted against the centralization that he and others stood for. A uh, kind of division within Mexican politics between centralists and federalists. And that fuels the revolt of the Texicans. What are their grievances? And I know that they themselves have a Declaration of Independence. I think it's March 2nd, is it, of 1836. What are the folks in Texas, what's their grievance against Santa Ana's government in Mexico? They were in favor of a federal system in Mexico where the provinces would be akin to states in the United States and would have a certain degree of autonomy, 
uh, a bit more independence from the central government. They also, I think, had cultural differences. Um, you know, the Mexican Constitution of 1824 mandated Catholicism, uh, abolished the institution of slavery. Um, there was a tendency for um, court proceedings to be held in Mexico City rather than the provinces and not by trial by jury, but rather before a judge. Um, all those things kind of coalesced together in the eight, late 1835, I think in part pushed over the edge by Santa Ana's dictatorship and lead to the revolt and lead to the Battle of the Alamo. How does the Battle of the Alamo itself happen? What's the military history leading up to that? So Santa Ana marches into Texas with a very large army of uh, 12,000 men and they split up into two wings. One goes towards Goliad and the other comes to San Antonio, which was a significant um, uh, metropolitan city area which would had military establishments. And Santa Ana wants to reconquer those from the Texans. And uh, the decision is made by Colonel Travis and others to defend the Alamo against the Mexican army led by Santa Eva, even though they're outnumbered by a rather large amount, 200 against 2,000. So by the time the, the Mexican army under Santa Ana gets to the Alamo, there's 2,000. How many defenders are at the Alamo? The estimate is 200. I've also seen estimates as high as 250, but I think 200 would be a good oh, So guy. essentially 10 to 1 outnumber. Yeah, 10 to 1 outnumber. Yeah. Uh, there's some famous Americans, certainly well-known in their time and maybe still well-known to us. Who are some of the folks either who were here in San Antonio or who come to the Alamo to help defend it? Of course, there's Davy Crockett, the famous Whig congressman from uh, Tennessee who arrives in February and um, you know, immediately becomes part of the force defending the Alamo, a very famous person within American culture even, even then. Uh -huh. uh, there's Jim Bowie, uh, you know, the man who had, uh, was known for his immense knife. Uh, yeah, and, the Bowie knife. The Bowie right, knife, right. right. Um, and of course, Colonel Travis, uh, who's the leader at the uh, Alamo, also kind of a, uh, a significant figure in Mexican history. They all lead the, or, or key members, um, although Crockett was nominally a private, although he was called a colonel um, of the force that's defending the Alamo. Why is Santa Ana so intent on taking the Alamo? Now, because we've, uh, we've learned since we've been here in San Antonio that the Alamo was not really, it was a little bit distant from the city itself. And so the defenders obviously make a retreat from the city to the Alamo. Why is Santa Ana so intent on taking it? I think he viewed San Antonio as a key uh, place in Texas that the Mexican government needed to possess. And so the defiance of the defenders of the Alamo had to be crushed. Now I think in hindsight it was a terrible mistake uh, to fight Why under so? the, well to fight, to fight under the black flag uh, and kill them all because it martyred them and enraged the surviving Texans and prolonged resistance and indeed of course he's defeated at San Jacinto the following month in April of uh, 1836. Um, so I think, I think his decision to fight without quarter was uh, only made his, uh, in the end, his situation worse. And that's something that he announced ahead of time. He said, we're right. going to attack, if you don't surrender now, if we defeat you, we will execute everyone. Yes, he put up the, the red flag saying either surrender or if you resist, there'll be no quarter. 
Wow. Uh, so What's the, the reaction of the men in, in the They Alamo? were defiant. I mean, I think that they had uh, made a decision that they were going to fight to the end. And um, I think that they hoped that there would be some relief that would come, which didn't. Um, hmm. So I think that's part of the reason why they decided to stay. Uh, the outcome is, of course, the Mexican army wins the battle. Um, what are the losses like? What's the fighting like in the battle? It was very bitter. Uh, I mean, the attack began on March the 6th early in the morning, um, and it was a very savage assault. Uh, the resistance was fierce. All the defenders were killed. Um, you know, they were basically um, defeated along the walls, and then some of them retreated in inside the perimeter and defended the church area for a while, but in the end they were annihilated. Uh, but the Mexican casualties were terrible, something like 600 killed and wounded out of a force of 2,000. Mm. So, mm. you know, tremendous casualties on the Mexican side, total annihilation of the Americans, um, and then the um, not taking prisoners and having the bodies burned rather than given a Christian burial, I think, uh, led to a real sense of Wait, grievance. so Santa Ana, after he executed the prisoners, then had their bodies burned? That's correct. The bodies were uh, dragged out of the um, palisade area or the compound and uh, put on funeral pyres and just burned up. And that was not the normal course of, It would have been, you know, that's right. That was kind of a, a rather brutal end to it all, above and beyond not taking any prisoners. And his point was to signal to the rest of Texas, if you resist, this is what will happen to you. Exactly. That will be your fate. If you resist, you'll be killed, and you'll uh, have a, not a Christian burial, not a typical uh, what normal process. What's the reaction among Texans when they hear about well, the battle? There's terrible rage. Uh, there was a similar massacre at Goliad uh, up the road a few, uh, a few days later. Another 400 men who surrendered after resisting and then were killed. Um, and the response of the surviving Texans is to raise a significant army and to attack Santa Anta and defeat him at San Jacinto in April. Uh, the story of Santa Ana's capture <laughs> is a, it's an interesting one and even a funny one. What happens? <laughs> so uh, Sam Houston leads an army and they surprise Santa Ana's force and attack on, I think it's the April 21st, the morning of April 21st or, or early afternoon. Um, and they kind of catch them napping, literally. And so they get into the Mexican camp, and the Mexican resistance kind of crumbles, and they start to, uh, a bit of a massacre. Santa Ana strips off his uh, uniform with all the epaulets and his, um, you know, signs of his office, and dons a private's uniform, and kind of disappears among the, um, you know, the average Mexican soldiers. But as they're rounding up prisoners, and the Texans did take prisoners, you know, they didn't kill everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but as Santa Ana, after he's, you know, as he's kind of milling about with the troops, they start to salute him because, of course, he's the commander in chief, even though he's dressed as a private. So, of course, the Americans. So they give him meter, away. <laughs> yeah, they immediately notice that, uh, gee, this isn't just your average private, this is someone of significance. What happens to Santa Ana? So he's captured, and uh, he's basically given a choice of death or sign a treaty granting Texas independence. And he chooses the latter huh. <laughs> rather than death and signs a treaty granting Texas independence, which the Mexican government doesn't acknowledge because, of course, Santa Ana was uh, under uh, a fair amount of coercion. Right. So then what happens to Texas? So Texas becomes an independent republic. It remains that until 1845 when it's annexed to the United States. In that interval, Sam Houston is generally the head of the government. 
um, and they chart a kind of independent course, the United States is tempted to annex um, Texas during that period. Uh -huh. But there's concern on the part first of Andrew Jackson and later Martin Van Buren that this would ignite a kind of divisive debate about adding additional slave state to the United States. Uh -huh. So they forego annexation uh, for a considerable period of time, even though there's tremendous interest in Texas uh, to join the United States. So there's Texas by this time, with the, with the Anglo settlers coming in, doesn't have much interest in going back to Mexico and being part of the Mexican country. They're, if they have any interest, they, have, they want to become part of the United States. That's correct. And uh, for all the cultural reasons that I suggested, also Texas was a slave state. Uh, uh -huh. or it became a slave state, and slavery was part of their economic system that many um, uh, Americans in Texas uh, endorsed and wanted to continue to participate in. And Mexico had abolished slavery in 1829, so there were lots of reasons not to go back to Mexico. I see. Now, it just has to be said, uh, and I think it's important to emphasize, that the Mexican government did not accept Texas's independence, and then later when it's annexed to the United States, they didn't accept that either. Well, they didn't. Uh, they regarded Texas as a kind of wayward province that at some point they would uh, reassert their control over. While Texas was an independent republic, did the Mexican government ever try to retake it? Yes, they made several attempts. Uh, uh -huh. I think 1842, 1844, pulling it out of the memory banks, where they actually sent armed forces across the Rio Grande and made an attempt to kind of reassert control, which was repulsed. Um, and then uh, when John Tyler, uh, somebody wrote a book about him. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty good one, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> when John Tyler uh, annexes or, or signs, basically supports a joint resolution in the both houses of Congress in late 1844, it comes to fruition early 1845, he signs it as one of his last acts as President of the United States and effectively begins the annexation process. Um, so Texas becomes part of the United States in 1845. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches US history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. Some of the important characters, some of the important leaders and even statesmen in Texas during this independence period, you mentioned Sam Houston. Talk a little bit more about him or some of the other leaders who are important in this period of Texas history. I think Sam Houston's the most notable one. Uh, I mean, he charts, you know, he raises the army that defeats Santa Ana and leads them into battle. He's then the president during a very difficult period where Texas is a republic. Um, 
he's and and Texas is a republic is beset by budget problems. You know, they have trouble raising uh -huh. any kind of revenue, significant uh -huh. revenue, uh, to support their functions. Uh, you know, their tax revenue was very limited. Uh, they had difficulty collecting customs duties along the coast. So they're constantly in pursuit of, of uh, funds. Meanwhile, they have to support a significant military force to keep Mexico from reclaiming the province. Plus, they have threats from Native Americans like the Comanche, who are more or less perpetually uh, in conflict with them over scarce natural resources and land. Mm -hmm. So Houston navigates all that course, or, or that difficult period, as, as head of the uh, Texas Republic, and I think does it reasonably well. Um, he's also involved in negotiations not only with the United States, but with Great Britain and France for assistance. You know, uh -huh. since Texas was a free republic, they had diplomatic relations with uh, Britain and France and, uh, and, you know, worked with them in an effort to try to get them to support their endeavor. Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the rub for the British was that uh, Great Britain was very much involved in, uh, or had a very strong middle class that was animated by anti-slavery sentiments. Ah, uh, yes. So they were somewhat reluctant, I mean, get, you know, recognizing or helping Texas because it was involved in slavery was a uh, difficult nut for them to crack as well. I see. Um, the independence of Texas ends with, when it becomes a state of the United States, and that's uh, 1845, is that right? Correct. And then, but then right after that, or perhaps as an effect of that, we have the Mexican-American War. Talk about that, that event. How does that come about? What is its connection to Texas becoming part of the United States? So once uh, Tyler leaves office, he's replaced by James K. Polk, who campaigned on an avowedly expansionist platform uh, as a candidate, and then as president, put that into effect. You know, uh, Polk was, was very much a believer that expansionism was essential to the growth and perpetuation of the American Republic. I think Polk, like a lot of Jacksonian Democrats, believed in the kind of agrarian ideal uh -huh. uh, that Jefferson talks about. You know, let's have lots of territory, and then we'll populate it with farmers. And farmers are the most virtuous of citizens. They'll be independent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, small R Republicans and and yeomen, and this is a good thing because it'll lead to uh, social stability. So he's very much in favor of that. Uh, and as president of the United States, one of his uh, uh, first acts was to send an envoy to Mexico to talk about the possibility of, um, first of all, getting them to Texas annexation, uh -huh. and then secondly, purchasing additional territory vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, or basically what today would be present-day New Mexico and California. Uh-huh. What's the response of the Mexican government? Yeah, so they, uh, Polk sends uh, John Sladell, who is a kind of Louisiana Democratic politician down there. I don't know that Sladell was the best choice, was the most sophisticated diplomat. But it doesn't really matter because when Sadell goes to Mexico in the fall of 1845, he's never really officially received by the government. The simple, really? tr the simple truth is that I think the Mexican government uh, had come to regard the seizure of Texas as a kind of affront. And, uh, or, or I should say seizure would be a better way of putting it with annexation. A kind of affront. So if, if uh, you know, if a, um, if a, Mexican government accepted an American envoy and talked about they would be accepting yeah, the annexation of Texas exactly and it would and, and, and they would there would be outrage among the key figures in, uh, in the Amer Mexican political system and the government would likely fall uh -huh. so then an awkward position of well we want to have a conversation but we can't have a conversation because if we have a conversation we'll be out of <laughs> the government will fall 
So Slidell cools his heels in Mexico for some bit of time and then returns to the United States at the beginning of 1846 and kind of uh, um, reports to Polk that his attempt at, at negotiation was futile. And at that point, Polk decides to send the American army first to Corpus Christi and then to the banks of the Rio Grande. And it's in the April of 1846 that the Mexican army crosses the Rio Grande and attacks uh, the American army led by Zachary Taylor. That's the beginning of the Mexican War. It's like the end of April. Um, there is a young congressman from Illinois, <laughs> one-term congressman, right. at that time serving named Abraham Lincoln. What is Lincoln's view of the Mexican-American War? Lincoln was a Whig, and Whigs regarded the Mexican War as a terrible mistake and simply wrong. Um, Whigs, the Whigs argued were, were big believers in congressional supremacy. They also thought that we should, as a country, develop the space that we already possessed rather than acquiring new space. I see. Uh, they felt that acquiring new space was uh, risky because it would bring, um, you know, uh, might potentially open up the divisive debate over slavery again, which of course is precisely what happens. So Lincoln was imbued with that. I think, I tend to think that Lincoln viewed the Mexican War as the latest and long line of kind of Jacksonian um, threats to the American Republic. You know, remember Jackson vetoed more bills than all previous presidents combined. Uh, he removed the deposits from the National Bank and basically crushed it. Um, he did a number of things, in other words, that were beyond what was considered the proper limits of the presidency. Well, now you have Polk essentially beginning the Mexican War, uh, well, the war and begins. And there's no congressional declaration of there's war no or authorization? Not, not, not until Polk asks for it. I mean, the uh -huh. war begins before Congress, and then it's kind of a de facto war before Congress makes it de jure and passes a, a, a resolution supporting the war that already exists. So Lincoln's argument was, well, you know, uh, one of the causes of the American Revolution was uh, we wanted to rein in the power of the king to commit the country to war without our consent or to do a variety of things without our consent. And so we wrote a constitution that limited the powers of the presidency to commit the country to war by investing it with Congress. Now we have a president who's essentially involved us in the war, has gone to Congress for a kind of approval after the war has begun. Hmm. This isn't kosher. So Lincoln's argument is that the Mexican War was unconstitutional, and bad policy. That's exactly right. Uh, and Lincoln, Lincoln believed that the war, you know, Polk's argument was, well, the, uh, the war began because the Mexican army crossed into American territory. Lincoln's argument was, well, it isn't quite certain that the territory between the Nueces River, or the river around, you know, close to San Antonio, uh, Corpus Christi was, uh, and between the Rio Grande was, was. So there's some disputed territory. Exactly. The there's disputed territory without getting too far into the weeds. Lincoln's argument was to say definitively that that's Mexican territory isn't true. Uh-huh. Or American territory, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. So as a result, the Mexican-American War, the United States wins the war. What's the consequence of the win? What's the treaty? And what happens? So the Mexican War ends with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, uh, and Mexico cedes massive amounts of territory to the United States. During the course of the... Uh, do they recognize Texas? They do recognize Texas. Okay. Uh, that's uh, part, part of the deal. Um, and uh, part of, you know, made, issue made moot by the war. Um, and then the other, uh, but the uh, problem is that the uh, Congress is tied up in a divisive debate 
over the question of uh, what to do about the territory vis-a-vis -vis slavery. Uh -huh. That begins in August of 1846 when uh, David Wilmot, a Pennsylvania Democrat, introduces a resolution in the House to that effect. That is, Polk asked for an appropriation to be used to settle the war diplomatically. In other words, we're gonna, we need money so we can go to Mexico and say, here's some money, let's end this war and we'll take this territory and this will be your compensation. Uh -huh. So Wilmot um, proposes a resolution to attach to that appropriations bill saying, any territory acquired from Mexico must be free. And uh -huh. it passes. It passes the House of Representatives. It's blocked in the Senate. Lincoln said, uh, uh, while he was a congressman for one term, Lincoln said, I think I voted for that Wilmot resolution 40 times. <laughs> it would be, you know, in other words, it would be introduced it over back. and over again, and it would be voted in favor and sent to the Senate where it would die, and the House would do it again. So the point is that opens the whole, you know, the begin, re reignites, which was a big argument, right? Uh, you know, if we expand, we'll end up in another divisive debate over slavery's expansion like we endured in 1820. We don't want to go through that again. And that's precisely what happens. The war begins. It becomes kind of a war of expansion. The territorial issue vis-a-vis -vis slavery rears its ugly head again, and the Congress is locked in knots for, um, you know, four years from 1846 to 1850. And as a result of that, Texas is in the Union as a slave state. What about the rest of the Western Territory, and what about California? So California, as part of the settlement of this whole divisive dispute in 1850, California comes in as a free state, and the regions that become New Mexico and Utah Territory are left up to popular sovereignty. That is to say, uh, the issue of slavery in those regions was on a kick to the people in the territories. Uh -huh. Now, there weren't many people there, so the question of whether or not slavery would exist or not in those regions was kind of postponed for a while, because there simply weren't you know, large numbers of settlers there uh, to have a kind of conversation about it. But the bottom line is it's kicked to those regions and at some vague point in the future there'll be a decision about whether slavery will exist there or not. And of course throughout the 1850s attempts at making compromise over the issue of slavery happen but in the end obviously as we know it fails at compromise and we end up with the U.S. Civil War. That's exactly right, and, and so uh, Ulysses Grant, uh, in his memoir, which everyone should read, it's a fabulous yeah, book. one of the best. It's just superb. But Grant uh, said that, you know, the Mexican War was really wrong-headed and led to this divisive debate over slavery, which then led to the awful Civil War and all the carnage of it. And so Grant's argument was that the Civil War was kind of penance or an atonement mm. for the sin of the uh, Mexican War, and um, I don't necessarily, you know, that may be uh, a little, a, a bit of a stretch, but you do have to look at cause and effect. I mean, yeah. it is, uh, you know, the, the divisive debate over slavery expansion was reignited, and in the end, 14 years later, you know, if you, if you date it from 1846, the war begins again. The first domino, the war as you say, the first domino in many ways is the Battle of the Alamo. Mm -hmm. The cause of that in many ways, as you make the case, is the particular character of Santa Ana and his ruthlessness in, in attacking and, and putting to death the defenders here and elsewhere. What happens to Santa Ana? He has a, a kind of mercurial uh, political career where he's uh, president of Mexico multiple times, comes back and you know, in, engages in the usual chicanery that he's known for, uh, you know, dictatorship of one form or another, and it is not successful. Um, I think it's kind of a, he's kind of a tragic figure in Mexican history because if, if he had pursued a less 
I would say, uh, if he had not pursued the course of military dictatorship, hmm. it might have been, uh, uh, you know, and, and I don't, I don't want to get too far out on, on, on a limb here, but I think it would have been better for um, Mexican history as well. So I think he's, he has a rather unfortunate career. The Me because Mexico had the opportunity to become a republic under their constitution, and in many right. ways Santa Ana subverts that. Yeah, he, he, you know, he abrogates the constitution of 1824, uh, which was a federated system that was modeled on the United States and rules by decree uh, at the head of an army. Huh. Uh, so it's, you know, he's a very unfortunate figure. What a I mean, I think he's, I think he's regarded uh, in some sense, in a positive way, as a nationalist, you know, a fierce defender of Mexico and Mexican autonomy. But, you know, his, his dismissal of, uh, of constitutional government was a disaster. Hmm. What a fascinating, interesting, rich history. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> From the Battle of the Alamo all the way to the first shots of the Civil War. <laughs> Dan Monroe, thank you so much for joining us today on The American Idea. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.